Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader Picked community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christoph van Houten, and today I'm joined by David Cayley, writer and broadcaster and close friend of Ivan Illich, whose voice and provocative intellect is missed more than ever in these peculiar times of ours. Hello, David, and welcome. Hi, Christoph. Thank you. Thank you for, for being here. As is more than clear today, the current COVID-19 pandemic has not only shocked our world, it has also allowed a number of criticisms to rise, which probably would have otherwise remained hidden. Political and legal subjects have been the main ones that have come under more detailed scrutiny. But when looking at this pandemic and the effects it is having on our world and our thoughts, it's not just the law or politics that should be summoned. There is, in fact, besides many other fields that are somewhat more indirectly touched by this crisis, one more field that is directly called into question, namely the field of medicine. Now, if there is one person who has had the courage, which it takes some courage to take on, that is to critically think through the advantages, but also, and maybe especially the disadvantages of the medical profession, well, then I can only think of Ivan Illich and his fundamentally important book, Medical Nemesis. And I think, David, that this book can be a good point to begin our discussion. Could you maybe help us and our listeners understand a little bit the importance of this book, and especially considering today's circumstances? Yes, I'd be happy to. It was a book that was first published in 1975, and in its final edition, uh, somewhat expanded, had a different name. It was then called Limits to Medicine. But it was a it was a kind of completion of of work that Illich began in the 1960s and that took the form of de-schooling society in 1970, energy and equity, which was a critique of transportation and speed, and uh, tools for conviviality, in which he first lays out a theory that he develops in Medical Nemesis, the theory of what he calls two watersheds, uh, i.e. that modern institutions um, reach a point at which they become efficient and helpful. Uh, and for medicine, he puts it in the early 20th century, uh, when doctors actually begin to do more harm than good. Mm. Um, and But... And usually that, for historians of medicine, that's very often the end of the story. It's it's progress forever after that. Mm. But Illich posits a second watershed, which he believed was occurring in his time, uh, at which what he, for the first time in medical nemesis, called paradoxical counterproductivity sets mm. in. It's kind of a mouthful, but um, it, it it is intelligible, I think. Right? A moment at which the institution uh, begins to get in its own way, uh, begins to defeat its own purpose, um, and in which the, the, these counterproductive effects overwhelm the good that has been done. So that's, that's the broad theory. Uh, in more detail, what he does in Medical Nemesis is 
first of all, to outline the kind of iatro he called he he uses the term iatrogenesis, which mm. just means iatros is Greek for physician, so doctor caused harm. Mm. And he begins with the things that I think today almost everyone knows about, which is that a lot of inadvertent harm is done in hospitals and clinics by you know giving you the wrong operation or the wrong drug, <laughs> or the drug, has, the drug has unexpected effects and people will generally know the the sometimes quite sensational uh, number of miscarriages that occur. But his much broader and deeper point is that there are also processes of what he calls social and cultural iatrogenesis. And that, broadly speaking, means the disabling of people's capacities, not just to care for one another, but ultimately... To, to suffer at all uh, and to die uh, in a way that is uh, their own, that, that their death belongs to them, pertains to them, expresses uh, the end of a life rather than the end of treatment. Mm. So the, in broad strokes, the idea is that you, that what he calls the art of suffering is impaired uh, and he, he knew perfectly well that he'd be understood as a masochist in saying that, right? A kind of reviver of some kind of archaic Christian austerities or self-flagellations. But he, he dared to say it anyway yeah. because he, he believed that, that um, suffering wouldn't disappear. Suffering would merely be hidden or deprived of its meaning, right? Uh-huh. You, you can suffer plenty in a medical setting, which is meant to overcome your suffering. Mm. But what would be lost would be people's ability to bear their reality. All suffering would become something not yet dealt with, something exceptional, something unmentionable. Uh, and roughly speaking, he said the same about death, which I think we can see around us. Yeah. At least where I am, you know, we lost a lot of people in in old age homes and so on, nursing homes, right? There've been, but it isn't. It isn't, in fact, uh, very far in Canada out of line with what happens every year, and no one notices. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Right? We we have had two thousand registered deaths. Uh, and in the normal flu season, according to the government of Canada, 300, about 3,500 people will die. Mm. So there's a trick of perspective involved, first of all, right? Mm-hmm. That we think that what we're looking at, you know, we, 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 uh, we're seeing it because we're looking for mm. the first time. Yeah, exactly. But... Um, but also, it, it's 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 registered as sheer loss, right? So you don't the meaning of these deaths is they're not they have no meaning, right? Except as as a toll, mm. right? We have a death toll. We count lives. We count deaths. Uh, we we register them as a whole. We they're considered to be 
only tragic loss. Uh, there's immense sentimentality expressed by mm-hmm. our political leaders. Uh, they're grief-stricken. They're heartbroken. They're you know, the, the, it's very hard to know what why a 90-year-old person should die. Mm. Uh, we just don't look at it, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing, which Giorgio Agamben has also pointed out, is, is that these are very inhumane deaths, right? Mm. These are people mm-hmm. alone or in just chaotic circumstances, right, of manufactured crisis, uh, who die by themselves, who have no funerals or no funerals to speak of, right? Maybe a few people are allowed. Yeah, but generally they aren't. So, yeah, so you you see then this, you see an action, what mm-hmm. it's called cultural iatrogenesis. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bit like what Arias also said about the exclusion of death from our contemporary culture that we now suddenly see coming back and 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 be be so so expressed vividly by the press who, who then makes it into a media spectacle spectacle of of all the, the the lines of of army trucks loaded with coffins and going to funerals that are in funeral. Yeah. No, Arias and Illich were friends. Okay. And I think uh, he was an important interlocutor okay. uh, for Illich. Okay. Nice. Um, but it's certainly exactly what he talks about in The Hour of Our Death. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, it's, it, it seems to me the, the really hidden thing here that, 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 that needs to be brought into the open, too. And it and it's that I don't know about in where you are, but here we've had all this talk about are we going to save lives or are we going to save the economy, right? Yeah. And it's just a way of speaking that I think should should just stop, mm. right? Mm-hmm. If if you find yourself speaking that way, stop. <laughs> And and rethink mm. this. It, this cannot. This is not a human world, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you weigh uh, one against the other, and they, they and they're they're not. It, it's just not a a good way of talking, right? Mm. It's mm. but it it's based. It's it's entirely based on a calculus in which life has a certain value, mm. right? How, but how great a value. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's a way of thinking that I think is, is in effect a madness. It's, mm. a, it's a derangement <laughs> of humanity, and, and, and it can only be refused. It can only be renounced, stopped. Mm. You, you can't go that way, right? Yeah. When you find yourself weighing Granny's life versus the economy, then <laughs> you need to stop. <laughs> also, how you're going to measure it? We have numbers of the economy, but we don't really have measurements of Nanny, of Grandmother, and nobody yeah. is going to yeah. agree 
on on the, yeah. the value of of my grandmother and then how how is she even more or less worth than somebody else's grandmother's right what what were the general reactions against the, the this book that shocked the world not well, just that book but most of Illich's books in, in the 70s shocked the people so but i i don't know this in detail but, but it it had a a certain succès de scandale you mm -hmm. might say uh and uh, and and it had a, a vogue even mm. but i think it was brief yeah okay i think people people quickly saw that this was a a critique so fundamental mm. that it couldn't really it couldn't be assimilated yeah uh, to the to the evolving system I remember reading. Uh, well, it. I think it was largely set aside. There were, there were doctors who, I mean, one case, uh, a doctor called Hudobin devoted a whole book to trying to answer Illich. Okay. Um, but I think generally the book had its had its day, and then, you know, it it did not change the medical system. No, no, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. And continuing on 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 this book a little bit, but. Going a little bit further, I think, and I think you can agree with me here, that Medical Nemesis also has one more aspect than just the, the general uh, view that it has. And, um, and, and you mentioned that in a recent text as well. In fact, it, 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 it's a book that is uh, uh, about what one could call professional power. I remember reading a text by Illich that he said once that he could have written, he wrote it about the medical uh, profession, but he could have written it about the postal service as well. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that was intended as a pun, but it made me smile. And, and so uh, anyway, but I think that the medical, the medical profession is is quite accurate in in his usage. And uh, so, but anyway, the, the meaning of the, of the professional power, I think, in a certain sense, it also questions what has now become very much talked about, and I talked about it as well in previous podcasts. And that's obviously Carl Schmitt's theory of the state of exception and the power of the sovereign. That is that this only the sovereign can declare the exception. I think what Illich's study, his, his the medical nemesis, demonstrate really well is that Schmidt was not wrong, but at least that his vision was very limited. Uh, power, the power to which Schmidt points, is not just limited to the sovereign that is understood as political power, but it can actually be a power that belongs to any, or not maybe not any, but at least to a certain amount of professional uh, power groups. And uh, so, and I would actually dare to say that today, uh, this power has not only been taken, but up until a certain point also usurped by the medical profession. Would you say that could be a correct reading of mine, or would I be over the line here? No, I think that's exactly what he says. And Illich, um, although I don't think he ever uses this phrase, um, I think the phrase comes from his uh, acolyte, Sajay Samuel, who spoke of a collapse of powers. Mm -hmm. But the whole theory of the modern democratic liberal state is, is a theory of separation of powers, right? Mm -hmm. Going back to Montesquieu and so on. And and Illich 
said that that power, I mean, as early as de-schooling society, said that that all the powers, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive, were collapsing in the person of the professional. Mm. The, the teacher already uh, had such a standing, he argues, mm-hmm. in de-schooling society. But he, he spells it out in Medical Nemesis, saying that the, you know, the power to to decide in an emergency is, is, is preeminently belongs to the doctor, and we we're seeing it now, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 our politicians in Canada uh, take almost no responsibility mm-hmm. for what they've done, for what they've done mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of whether they're right or whether they're wrong, whether they were prudent or, or reckless, However, it will be shown in the end. They they take no responsibility for having made a political judgment at all. Mm-mm. They say we've done what science told us to do. Yeah, exactly. Now this is this is fanciful because there is no science, right? There may be advice from people who are entitled uh, to put letters after their name and wear white coats, mm. but there is no science as such, right? Mm-mm. Nor could that. Nor could there be. Um, but uh, so I think that that this yeah this this illustrates this whether life with a capital L is now the sovereign is is you know that's something we could discuss right I, I don't know if it's true or not but okay. I think uh, I think you know there you can. You can see stages on this way, right? Mm-hmm. The duty to protect, for example, mm-hmm. when you begin to bomb other countries mm-hmm. in order to protect mm-hmm. their citizens. You know, the the this there is a there is an evolving discourse in which life is the sovereign is the sovereign, mm-hmm. uh, and this I think is the highest power, the power. Of for which the exception can be declared, for which anything can be done. And I, I mean, I think this, this, whatever it turns out to have been, is just an amazing demonstration of, of, of power. I don't know when one has seen this before. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't a, remember. A whole, a whole population quarantine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh. When nothing is wrong with them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so um, yeah I think that that is a it certainly should lead to a revision of of Schmidt's theory mm-hmm. yeah and and that the what he calls the political uh, I don't know if it's vanished but it's it's not what he thought it was anyway mm-hmm. yeah and, and and staying a little bit longer with Schmidt and and now what you just said, I think there might be something that what one of the problems could be is it is his understanding of the sovereign. Maybe we should and and I think also today, this is quite clear. We should change the sovereign uh, for another name that is also of great importance for Illich, and that's the prophet. Uh, as you well know, Illich was considered by some people to be a prophet, but he actually refused. Uh, this title for himself, although he recognized the importance of the figure, and especially for 
uh, early Christendom. But thinking about, because uh, Illich then said that he refused, and at least that, that's how I remember, he refused the title of prophet, uh, obviously also for humble reasons, but also because he was convinced that the times of the prophet and of prophecy were long gone. But if we look at what is happening today, I think I, I kind of changed my mind. If, if one looks at politics, but especially as at the medical professions, professionals, they're talking about the future in terms that they, it, it seems that they know what is going to happen. And this is very much what the prophet used to do. There would only be a slight difference then that, and also that that's something I, I found quite ironical is that when Elie said that the prophet was the one who went into the desert, today this has been reversed and now the prophet is actually sending the whole population of the world into the desert, if one can see this somewhat provocatively. So how, how would you think about this figure of the prophet in this context? Well, let, let's, let's first uh, talk about Illich and mm -hmm. then talk about this your concept which is so interesting of of uh, of the the modeler as prophet <laughs> um, Illich uh, was strictly Christian in this respect that he said that the the function of prophecy in the Old Testament as we call it
take this vocation, the vocation of prophet, as the vocation of friend, mm. right? So he wants to be regarded as a friend, mm. uh, and and that's consonant with this view that you know the word is present amongst mm. us. So that's why he rejects the term. Now you want to go on to the next part? Yeah, the one that uh, here that today it seems as as if this this talking about the future in the ancient understanding of of the concept of prophet that that somehow has returned, and, and it surprises me how many people of the so-called exact sciences can talk so confidently about the future and it's it's they know what is going to happen in in the fall. They know how long, for example, this pandemic is, is going to stay with us. So, so this whole certainty about the future made me think about the, the, the whole idea of the prophet. And, and that, put it, that put it actually against the, the concept of the sovereign. Maybe the sovereign is not the one who has the power because he can decide, but he has the power because he can uh, say what the future is going to be. So that was Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I want to answer it if I may, in two parts. Sure. First of all, Illich um, tentatively, gradually, and more towards the end of his life became explicit about his view that our civilization seen as a whole, Latin, the West, Latin mm -hmm. Christendom, uh, and, and the societies that grew out of it, is is the gospel turned inside out or upside down? He, he didn't necessarily have a, a good way of saying it. Um, that that you can't really understand anything about how we live if you don't understand the project of the uh, church of the second millennium to become a state of an entirely new kind. And you can't understand the ambition to become such a state unless you understand the gospel, mm. that you feel that you are in the presence of final truth. Mm. Um, it's only necessary to realize this, right? Mm -hmm. And Charles Taylor, in his magnificent tome, the, A Secular Age, has, has spelled it out in much greater detail than Ivan ever attempted, right? Mm -hmm. How modernity is the attempt to realize Christianity mm. and in the process to to completely flatten a crucial distinction between the mm. uh, you know which is in the Gospel of John right mm. which being of God or being of the world mm -hmm. uh, com quite incompatible but, so um, so that's so Illich certainly sees modern ambition as a perversion of Christian truth. It's 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 a corruptio optimi pessima as he put it, right? <laughs> yes, he, revived, he revived this old <laughs> saw that goes back to antiquity. Mm. You can find it in Aquinas, you can find it in Shakespeare, uh Sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it's in so many forms that mm -hmm. the 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 best can become the worst. Yeah, exactly. 
and that's 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 his his motto, if you like, his axiom. Now, this whole thing about modeling that you're saying and, and prediction, right, and living increasingly in in hypothetical spaces, which are also in virtual spaces, but in in hypothetical spaces in the sense that they're they're modeled, they're predicted, right? You're being uh, this was a revelation to him in the 1980s and a reason for him to say, well, I just, you know, missed the boat with medical nemesis, right? Mm-hmm. I was still making a lot of assumptions that I now see don't apply, right? Mm-hmm. That people have internalized this whole consciousness much more deeply, right? So their very conception of themselves is, is, uh, is he said, iatrogenic, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, you know, we're a, a tissue of CAT scans and what have you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the, the very archetype of the human being and as a limited being, as a condi- as a human condition, he began to see it is being lost, right? Mm-hmm. And and a huge part of that for him was risk awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Mo- model modeled reality. Mm-hmm. So, uh, shall I tell one story? He he encountered a a, a woman, a, a friend called Celia Samersky, who was had begun to study um, genetic counseling in Germany. So if you're going to have genetic testing in Germany in pregnancy, you you first must be counseled. Mm. And she studied these counseling sessions. And and this was, was news to Ivan, that you might make a decision about your pregnancy, whether to end it or not, on the basis of a probability. <laughs> I remember and, that. And, not, and, and so the great thing for him was that this was not, that people took as being about them things that were about populations, mm-hmm. right? So you actually internalize risk awareness as if you were just a typical specimen of some population. Right. You have you have lo- you have become in that model. You have become completely biologized, mm-hmm. uh, and and that I think threw him just just threw him. It seemed uh, an inex- an inexpressible horror, and it seemed. So obviously contradict, and I think you were hinting at this before, the messianic dimension, mm. the idea that anything could occur that isn't in the regular predictable round of things. Mm. Uh, it's it's the complete. You know, a Canadian scholar Ian Hacking did a book years ago called "The Taming of Chance," mm-hmm. in which he basically understands our 
modern science as the discovery of probability and then the attempt to bring it under control, right? Mm. So that everything is foreseeable. There are no, there can be, there should be no surprises. <laughs> uh, and there should be complete knowledge. Uh, and you should make decisions based on these calculated probabilities. So this, this, I don't know what to call it, this virtual, hypothetical, risk-aware consciousness uh, gradually but thoroughly colonizes people. Mm. Uh, and so... In, in so I your conception of the modeler, if I can use that, since we've had so many models thrown at us in the last few months, <laughs> uh, is is a new kind of prophet. Yes, mm. absolutely, within the context of cryptooptimi pessima, mm. that yeah, these are par these are parody prophets, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Or yeah. Yeah, we, we can call him the... But, I, but you couldn't... On Illich's reckoning, you couldn't have ever got to that without going through the door of of the old prophets. Mm. Yeah, that, that you can, and that And that's an axiom for him, that you cannot understand what has happened unless you see Christianity, speaking broadly, as the door. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Right? You okay. can't... You, you know, there. It it may have become a worldwide society now, but it needed. It was not inevitable. It mm. came by a certain path. Yeah. And the path by which it came, this is my corollary to Illich, uh, needs to be retraced if if we're to have any possibility of understanding how we got here. <laughs> uh, to 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 overcome the sense of inevitability in having mm. got here. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I could not agree. So I think your idea is very promising. <laughs> Thank you. And just one more uh, question, if I may, to conclude. In 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 a recent piece that you you wrote, you I think you said something quite important. You made a question there. And you asked, what would have happened if this crisis had not been declared a pandemic? I thought your usage of the word declared is, is, is quite extraordinary. Because it, it threw me back to the understanding of, of, of what has lately happened in, in politics. It's been a sort of, of abuse of, of what, one, what one could call a performative words. We all know what performative words are. But mm -hmm. I don't think that has... Um, Most people who are using these declarations know what performative words are. And so I was wondering if, if, if you could just say something in conclusion, if, if, if it might be true that what I think that we are overstretching language might actually be a, 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 an, an actual uh, phenomenological statement or, or if it is a provocative, merely a provocative statement. Uh, uh. No, I I, th I don't think it's just a provocation. But I mean, here, this comes to me, you know, 
Ivan only glanced off. Well, he was a media theorist, so I, I don't mm-hmm. want to say that. He was a he belongs within what Neil Postman called media ecology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in in a broad sense, but he didn't specifically uh, study the effects achieved by journalism, yeah, which true. has been my yeah. lifelong preoccupation. Right? <laughs> that's why I asked and, it, you. <laughs> yeah, and, and certainly I think your your this idea of that some words are performative, right? That is, they create what they declare. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they they manifest what they say. They don't describe something else. Mm. Is 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 so obvious in this case, right? I mean, I heard a this this always there was always power in the idea of plague. Historians say that 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 plague was always more salient and more fearsome than other diseases. That barely were, you know, that just didn't have the same profile, right? Mm-hmm. It may be that more people in a plague year died of consumption, but no one, it wasn't the plague, mm-hmm. right? And I, I feel that a, that for some reason, and it's not the first time that the word pandemic has been used because mm-hmm. you know the swine flu in two thousand nine that was called a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think SARS was the first round of SARS. Two thousand and three was it? Yeah, Four. Exactly. yeah, it was yeah. was also called a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, a pandemic's just an epidemic that's in several places. <laughs> but somehow the word just came alive this yeah. time, <laughs> and the really instant good. the WHO uh, declared it, people, you know, came to the conclusion that they had entered a new form of reality. Right, it was a license to say the most extravagant things, and you know, the very next day, one of our two major newspapers in Toronto had a big headline called, which just said "panic," <laughs> and and that's a performative term. I, I mean, you know, it, you might think it was descriptive, but I don't think it was descriptive. Not Nobody yet. was panicking; they Not, were saying to yeah. panic, and it happened. Okay, time to panic. Yeah. And yes, I think we 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 thir- we have we thoroughly panicked. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think the thought experiment: what would this be like if we didn't have, if we hadn't understood in advance what it is, mm. if we were taking it as it came along, uh, is is an interesting one to try and perform. Yeah. Yeah, I could not agree more. But unfortunately, they haven't done that performance. So thank you, David Cayley, for being with us today. Thank you for being on Pick Voices, and thank you well, for listening. It's a joy. Thank you. Thank you, David. <laughs> <laughs>